The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm excited to have Tom Vanderark, CEO of Getting Smart, to join us, and we're going to have a great conversation. Tom is a prolific writer and speaker, has co-authored more than 50 books, chapters, white papers, and has published thousands of articles. He writes regularly on Getting Smart, LinkedIn, and contributes to Forbes. I'll include some links to those areas on the show notes. Tom served as the first executive director of education for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and was a public school superintendent in Washington State. He's also held executive roles in retail, energy, technology, and the list goes on and on. Has a a really impressive background, has done a ton of work in areas of education, the intersection of education and the digital world, educational innovation, um, and certainly playing a role in helping co-create the future of education. So Tom, welcome. Dr. Bull, it's great to be with you. You have such an expansive and extensive background. I'm wondering if, as we get started, if you could share a little bit of of that journey. Just tell us um, what led to where you are today, what you're doing today with Getting Smart and some of the other work. It's uh, now a long and complicated history, but I, I started as an engineer and uh, backed into finance, had a, a great career uh, helping to build companies in Denver. And uh, I had a CEO that really pushed me to get involved in education in Denver in a variety of ways. And a couple months into doing that, I really uh, realized that, one, how big the gaps were in education, and two, that it uh, was really felt like my calling, uh, the place that I wanted to spend the rest of my life. And so I had this 700-day period where I was very clear about why I'm on the planet and uh, with no idea where and how I would get involved in education. And I uh, surprisingly had the opportunity to become uh, the first business executive to try to be a public school superintendent here in Washington State, where you don't need a, a certificate to do that. Uh, and in some ways, that went quite well. Uh, in other ways, I deeply regretted not having uh, more formal preparation, uh, but my my rich uh, organizational development work and, and teaching um, in graduate school prepared me for, uh, well, for some aspects of the job, and there was a lot of on-the-job learning. I was a public school superintendent for five years and then had the opportunity to help uh, Bill and Melinda start the Gates Foundation spent about eight years there, uh, ran the XPRIZE Foundation for a few years, launched the first EdTech Venture Fund, and then uh, joined my wife and daughters at, uh, at Getting Smart. The last 20 years of my life have really about been about innovations in learning for the purpose of equity, of, of trying to create uh, better educational experiences for more young people. And so at Getting Smart, we focus on helping educators 
develop next steps. And we do that through advocacy, uh, through writing, publication, and uh, speaking, and through our advisory practice. We help people develop uh, innovative new schools. We help them innovate inside uh, school districts and, and help them create school networks. Uh, that was the subject of my most recent book. The, the single thread of the last 20 years has really been innovations for equity. So um, speaking of that, uh, well, part of what, what intrigued me recently, I followed your work for quite some time, but was an article you wrote at the end of 2019, maybe the middle of December, closer to the end of December. And it was called 2019 brought more risk and inequity. 2020 is an opportunity for innovation. And um, for the listeners, I'll provide a link directly to that article who, for those who want to read a little bit more. I'm wondering if maybe we can't just do a little bit of a recap of that. As you're reflecting on 2019, what were some of the the risks or inequities that were especially apparent to you in the last year? I have studied the the future of work, or more accurately, the, the changing nature of work and the economy uh, with some support from uh, several foundations for the last five years. And I find that 2019 and this period that we're in to be quite uh, paradoxical. It, it is both the best of times and the worst of times. By all economic measures, uh, the American economy is in pretty good shape. We have a stock market that is at record highs and unemployment that appears to be at record lows. But when we dig into those numbers, we find out that there's a tremendous amount of inequity in our society and that that is growing. Uh, there's far more unemployment when you dig into the numbers than is apparent from the 3.6 or 3.7 headline. In fact, the youth unemployment remains quite high. And there's a large number of people that are working two or three jobs um, unable to find work that pays a, a family wage. We're seeing a period of uh, tremendous innovation. That we now live, learn, work, and play on technology platforms, and we're seeing a lot of traffic migrating to very large platforms. So think uh, Google and Facebook, um, Microsoft, uh, the, the tech giants that are now leaders in artificial intelligence, uh, code that learns. Uh, and that has really become prevalent in the last three years across all the platforms uh, that we live, learn, work, and play on. Uh, and while AI and machine learning uh, bring many tremendous benefits, they are also great aggregating forces that are increasingly concentrating wealth and control in our economy. So when I was reflecting at the end of 2019, uh, I, I said, overall, it's a great economy if you're rich. Uh, if you're not rich, uh, you're probably struggling. And you're seeing the very wealthy um, speeding away in terms of their income and and uh, balance sheet. As a result, uh, the net conclusion is that I think 
our future together is going to come down to sharing how we decide to distribute the wealth and benefits of the exponential technologies that have been developed. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think about um, and and you've written about this before. Our interests certainly overlap in lots of different ways, but um, artificial intelligence is obviously dependent upon the data that it gets, and then there are obviously people who are uh, developing algorithms and the like that help shape how this uh, how these systems work. And when we reduce learning to these these small sets of numbers or simplistic numbers or measures, it's easy to, um, it's, it's easy to leave people behind. I think about, um, a grade point average or other kinds of metrics that people use, um, that might, that might, uh, suppress some voices and decrease access and opportunity as much as anything else. They, they do. I, I'd love to speak to that a moment. I guess one of the greatest disappointments in my life is um, if I look back 20 years ago, on one hand, I was making grants to uh, the most progressive schools and networks in the world, um, helping to stand up places like High Tech Eye and New Tech Network and big picture learning and expeditionary learning. And on the other hand, uh, making policy grants to add more measurement so that we could better identify and address inequity in our system. What happened as a result was that we stood up No Child Left Behind and created um, a, a radical focus on grade level proficiency, uh, some standardized measures of um, reading and math. And not that those aren't um, important, but we created uh, an entire system preoccupied with a narrow measure of end of year proficiency and uh, in many ways lost sight of the broader aims uh, of education that are becoming more and more important. And so in some respects, our narrow measures took us, um, set us back, um, narrowed our focus at, at a time when we should have been paying more attention to the whole child, more attention to the social development, more attention to the, the agency and efficacy uh, that young people are um, experiencing in a, in a complicated time. Yeah, so we have, when the moment policymakers step into this, they're obviously going to be calling for some kind of evidence of... Uh, that that their investment is making the difference that they want. They want to see some kind of outcomes. How do we, do you have any thoughts about promising practices for how we can, we can provide that evidence, but with, but keeping it from turning into this kind of reductionist uh, measurement, like we've, the trap we've fallen into seemingly year after year after year. Yeah. The, the key is having a community conversation about what's most important We've seen this uh, work well in hundreds of communities around the country where we ask what's happening in the world and what does it mean for education? What should young people know and be able to do? And in well-resourced communities and under-resourced uh, communities, the, the answers you get are very thoughtful and they give you a balanced set of um, aims for education. Some people call that a, a portrait of a graduate 
or a profile of a graduate. And if you build that um, as a set of goals and then develop a set of, of metrics or project uh, progress indicators that match that, uh, that broad set of metrics, you, you really come up with a much more thoughtful dashboard. Um, it, it's true that that dashboard is, is full of some proxy measures that are not yet great or, or well regarded, but um, with effort, you can report back to your community on a, on a broad dashboard that actually re reflects the uh, appropriate aims for our time. Yeah, that makes sense. I think uh, I'm in a college right now that has never used letter grades since its formation in the 1930s. It was a college sort of created in response to the growth of fascism in the West with the belief that that uh, for a democracy to survive, there need to be citizenry who have a deep sense of voice, choice, ownership, and agency. And the thing I, I keep thinking about in, in this type of conversation is is how do you measure agency when people are looking? I mean, that seems to be a really critical ingredient to to active engagement in our world today, in our society today, is this sense that what I do uh, matters and can make a difference. And yet I don't see anyone talking about measurements of agency or learner voice or um, that, that leads to citizen voice. Well, I'll give you a quick example. The New Tech Network is 200 project-based schools around the country. Most of them are public high schools. And in those schools, they measured agency, collaboration, oral and written communication on every project that uh, that they conduct. And these are wall-to-wall project-based schools. So for every project, there's a, an agency rubric that really describes what full agency learning looks like and students receive feedback from teachers and advisors, from sometimes community members on the agency that uh, that they experienced in the in the project. So it is possible to develop systems, networks of schools that use these common measures and provide useful real-time feedback on what matters most. Yeah, that's intriguing. I'm going to have to check that out. I've not seen something specific to agency like that and I've followed the if you, if you just google if you just google new tech network agency rubric, uh you'll see a set of rubrics for each age span from K to 12. They're quite well developed. A, a great example of how a, a voluntary network of schools can um band together around a set of tools that provoke deeper learning and provide useful feedback. That's great. Have, have you seen anything and how do we take something like that? So we have this initiative and it's not small. Um, we're talking about schools across the country engaged in this sort of project-based learning uh, model and, and some, some interesting approaches to measure what's happening like agency. Um, how does a, how does a conversation like that move from a system to an ecosystem? That's an unfair question, I know. If we had the answer to that, we'd have it solved. <laughs> uh, it's a difficult question. Um, I, I would say that uh, I'm encouraged by the movement that we've seen in K-12 education in America towards uh, social-emotional learning, for example, in the last five years. 
it's now uh, widely understood that that is a critical outcome of coming to understand yourself and to uh, have empathy for others, to be able to construct productive relationships, uh, to manage your time and attention, and to work well in diverse teams, that these are um, perhaps the most important outcomes of, a, of an education experience. We know that um, I would say the majority of schools in America now acknowledge that those are important um, aims. They describe them in slightly different ways. Uh, there are a number of emerging ways to observe uh, social emotional learning and to provide useful feedback, uh, but measurement systems are still rather nascent. And so a national commission that recently uh, concluded its work, advised policymakers against trying to insert uh, early measures into accountability systems because they were not yet mature. But I do think we can say that we've seen the recognition go to scale. We've seen adoption of strategies that promote social emotional learning uh, go to scale. And so I think we're in the process of being an ecosystem that uh, values and fully incorporates social emotional learning. My life goal is really to do the same thing for community connected project-based learning. Um, I'm trying to increase awareness of how important that is to give, to uh, enable young people to walk into complexity, to take on difficult, challenging work, to do it as a team, uh, to learn how to deliver value for a group of customers uh, or, or for a public. Um, and, and I'm pleased to see uh, momentum on that front. Um, but uh, as you suggested, uh, having that become the norm in the education uh, ecosystem is a, a, a tremendous challenge. Yeah, and that's where in your article you talk about some promising, um, some promising signs of 2019 and going into 2020. You talk about uh, what you reference as the Greta Thunberg uh, effect, um, as well as AI for good, as as two uh, two signs of of a promising practice or something emergent, some lessons for us to learn for education. Well, I. I, uh, around the same time, I wrote a, a blog about five different um, innovations that have made it much easier uh, for all of us, especially for teenagers, to make a big difference. Uh, I think social media, uh, the platforms that we learn uh, and communicate on, uh, the commerce platforms that are available that allow young people to move into the freelance economy, um, platforms like Etsy that allow them to become creators. And um, I, I was in a school in Washington, D.C. yesterday where students were doing web development um, in the freelance economy. Uh, and then machine learning tools, open machine learning tools um, like TensorFlow and PyTorch uh, that are becoming available through uh, nonprofit support organizations like Technovation and, and AI for All. And the net net is uh, I'm seeing teenagers 
make a big difference in their community uh, using these new tools. And and to me, that's uh, very exciting. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of Greta Thunberg and um, the climate strike that she uh, started and the global movement that is um, that it's created. I think it's great evidence of this new ability for young people to make a difference. I'm so enthused by it. I, I just wrote a book on that subject called Difference Making and suggest that it ought to be the the mission of every K-12 school and of, of every college to equip young people to come to an understanding of who they are and what they're good at, what they care about and where and how they're going to make a difference in the world. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That certainly would transform the way we think about measurement, like we were talking before. I mean, if we were to measure the effectiveness or the value of a learning community by the the degree of agency as represented in tangible acts of of uh, being a change agent in the world. That would certainly change things for us. It's a very different measure. It's interesting. I heard Brene Brown on a podcast last night say that for her, success is contribution. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I... I just about drove off the road. I was so happy to hear that. Um, <laughs> this new book really makes that argument that success is contribution. It's our ability to give back uh, to the community, to build the common good, and to make that idea central to learning systems um, does suggest a very different sort of a dashboard, right? It uh, it, it, it would... It would be a, a dashboard or a, a, a recognition system of that would be focused on contribution of how well um, people, including young people, had um, been in service to others. I think related to this, I think we're going to see the development of a social economy that more, more accurately and fully recognizes the contribution that people make. Today, many people in the service economy uh, are paid for hours. And I think we're going to get better at valuing contribution of early childhood teachers, of uh, folks that work with senior citizens, and be able in a more robust way to measure the contribution that they're making um, and begin to uh, to compensate people um, more fully for how they're contributing back to society. Yeah, I rem- this is reminding me of an interview I did a number of years ago with uh, someone from Frog Design and a design thinking firm. And they've built this collective action toolkit that's sort of a toolkit that you can hand to any community and walk them through. And it gives them sort of the ways of thinking in order to um, identify a problem or a need in a community and go through an empathetic design process in order to uh, identify and prototype some solutions. And there was one community somewhere in the world, and I'm blanking on exactly where it was, where there wasn't an established or an exi- existing school system, but they actually used this collective action toolkit as sort of the foundation for their curriculum. So the school actually was a group of young people coming together, identifying needs and problems in their community, in their region, and then actually enacting the solutions to them. 
That's great. That's um, in short the picture that um, I'm trying to create in my uh, my new book. Love that idea. Wonderful. And you know, there's a, it brings up also another article that you wrote about, um, and you reference it in the article we're talking about uh, regarding 2019 and 2020, which is the equipping young leaders to take on 32 of the most important issues of our time. It's definitely worth a read for the for the listeners to check it out. And not even that I necessarily think that those are exactly the 32, but it's a great place to start. And it would be incredible to imagine an emergent curriculum where young people sit down and identify identify the 30 or 32 or 35 or 20 together and then uh, right. begin to work through solutions. And that's really my point. I, you know, I suggest you could start with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 um, broadly adopted goals uh, where there's a global commitment to make things substantially better uh, for the 8 billion people that share this planet by 2030. A good starting point, but they don't in total represent the most important issues of our day. Um, they're, they're more problem focused and uh, really critical emerging opportunity in the world. And based on a lot of smart people that have been thinking about this, um, I, I suggested the addition of seven or eight additional goals. But my point there is um, have a community conversation issues in the world, and then get to of systematically introducing young people um, to the most important issues in the world so that they can begin to understand where and how they want to make a difference. It makes good sense to me. And I wonder, we, we, this, these interviews go so quickly, uh, this 30 minute short form uh, podcast format, we're already in the last few minutes. And so we'll have to pose this big question that we probably can't answer in a few minutes. But obviously, um, if, if we're going to begin to, to see this happen more in schools, um, what needs to change or, or uh, what do we need to do to support this kind of a, of a focus upon schools as platforms for learners to affect change in the world? The short answer is we need to have community conversations. Uh, school leaders and system leaders are now community conversation leaders. I, I think the most important work that they do is to build a set of temporary agreements that move their community forward. And if you, you begin the conversation by inviting people to reflect on what's happening in the world and what it means for kids, and as a result, what kids should know and be able to do, and given that, what kinds of experiences should young people be having, you can use that agreement uh, to sponsor innovations in your school in your district, in your network, in your college. So the, the, unfortunately, um, if you don't have those community uh, conversations and you attempt to build a, an innovation agenda, you'll get fired because you'll just be way out in front of the community. Uh, so it's really critical to, to build community understanding and community support. The good news is that this works and it, it almost always works if you commit to a, a dialogue about what's happening. You can anywhere build support for innovative learning programs that engage young people in authentic community connected work. 
And it certainly seems to align with uh, uh, democratic values. <laughs> we're, we're, we're embodying them when we when we pursue it, a practice. It like does. That. And I would say it is hard work. I don't want to underestimate that, um, that, that holding a series of community conversations to build support for the path forward is um, it is challenging work. We can do a bit more of that work electronically than we did uh, um, in the past, but there, it does turn out that relationships matter a great deal. And um, a lot of this work remains, remains face to face uh, with the people that we serve. Right. Well, Tom, we are already at the end of our time. Uh, I really appreciate the work that you're doing in the world. I uh, thank you for sharing it in writing so others of us can, uh, ponder and, uh, deepen our own, our own, uh, individual and collective action. So I'm, I'm grateful for your time here on the podcast and for your work in the world. Thanks for the invitation. It's been great to be with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.